I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This show is not about lumberjacks. My name is Christopher Grunland, and every month I share a story. Sometimes the stories contain truths, but most of the time they're made up. Sometimes the stories are funny, other times they're serious. But you have my word about one thing. I will never, ever share a story about lumberjacks. This time I'm sharing a story about a mechanic who's happy to hear his son is finally playing organized football. That is, until he finds out what his son really means is soccer. Alright, let's get to work! Pride of the Red Card My dad understood two sports, football and boxing. It wasn't that my dad was a macho guy, but when it came to sports, he liked those involving a certain degree of violence. When we finally got cable in the early 80s, I was surprised that access to hockey and rugby didn't make him at least drop football from his list of violent sports. As far as boxing, well, it's two guys beating the hell out of each other. Only hockey fights, especially when I was younger, rivaled boxing's brutality. I moved from Chicago to Kansas in sixth grade to live with my dad and my stepmother. I had a stepfather in Chicago I wasn't particularly fond of, and figured moving to another state was a great way to not have to deal with him. It wouldn't even take a full year in Kansas to realize I was also not particularly fond of my stepmother. In the end, it came down to which parent I preferred and I was always closer to my mom and her side of the family than my dad's. Mom's side was creative and nice. My dad's side of the family was bitter and mean. Here's an example. My grandfather, Grandpa Keen, was a paratrooper in World War II. One day while visiting him with my father, Grandpa Keen invited me into his home office and showed me the medals he was given for his service in the war. I was never fond of the man, but seeing box after box of medals made me finally feel a little bit of pride for the side of the family whose name I carry. As he put some medals back into the box where they were stored, I looked around his office. I noticed a pair of handcuffs on a shelf. I later found out that there was a short time after the war that my grandfather was a cop, which is funny considering my father was born in the Cook County Jail when my grandparents were locked up for burglary. Grandpa Keen noticed me looking at the handcuffs. He walked over to the shelf and grabbed them. Give me your hand, Butch. I have no idea why, but that's what he always called me. Butch. I presented my right hand and he closed one of the cuffs around it. He closed the other end around his wrist. See if you can get out of that. Even with my tiny wrists, there was no way of twisting and pulling my hand free. I can get out of this. Watch. He rubbed his free hand around his wrist, and sure enough, his side opened wide. I was young enough that I didn't notice that he had palmed the key to unlock it. I figured that maybe in his youth, well before the war, he must have known Houdini, and I just knew that he was going to share all the big secrets about magic with me. Instead, he locked the open cuff around the leg of the chair he was sitting in. With all his weight on the chair, there was no way I was lifting the leg up and freeing myself. I was nervous, but Grandpa Keen redirected my attention by opening another box full of medals. From the box, he pulled out a pin, a metal pair of wings with a parachute in the middle. He pointed to a scar on his chest. 
I've waited until this point in the story to mention that my father's father never wore a shirt. That's how he pointed to the scar so easily. Hell, he rarely wore pants. Dressing up for company meant he wore a tank top and sweatpants. Most of the time, Grandpa Keen's ample belly rested on his thighs as he sat on the couch in his living room, covering up his tidy-whitey underwear with his belly and making those not in the know believe there was a large naked man before them wearing only a Chicago Cubs or Chicago Bears cap on his head, depending on the season. I looked at the scar on Grandpa Keen's chest. It was a small pucker of tissue a shade whiter than his already pasty white body. I got that in the war. From these. He held up the paratrooper's jump wings a little closer to me. Those are blood wings. You see, after earning these in the army, they shove the pin into your chest. Then, for good measure, they're punched in deeper, over and over, or they're just ground in deep. He smiled when he said, It's time for you to earn your blood wings, butch. Handcuffed to the chair leg, I couldn't get up and run as he leaned forward with the paratrooper pin in his left hand. He made a fist with his right hand. I never realized until that moment how massive Grandpa Keen's hands were. I was convinced he could grind rocks to sand in his palms, and I could see how sharp the points of the paratrooper pin were as Grandpa Keen moved it slowly toward my chest. Dad! I shouted. Dad! Before Grandpa Keen could initiate me as the youngest member of the 502nd Parachute Infantry Battalion, my father appeared at the door. Ah, hell, not the blood wings thing, Dad. Come on, let him go. Grandpa Keen rocked his chair to the side, allowing me to slide the handcuffs down the leg and free that end from his hold. But he wouldn't tell us where the key was. He just got up and went to the couch. My dad and I looked around his office to no avail. With only underwear and folds of skin for Grandpa Keen to hide the key, we weren't going to push the issue. My dad put his hand on my shoulder. We'll take care of it on the way home, okay, bud? By taking care of it, my dad meant that he'd cut the handcuffs free from my wrist in his shop. My father was a mechanic who had his own shop after trying to start a union where he previously worked, which resulted in a series of death threats. I remember the evening when three guys came to our front door after dinner. I peeked around the doorway from the hallway that led to my every-other-weekend bedroom to see what was up. One of the guys showed my father a pistol. At first, I thought it was something he needed fixed. My father sold marijuana and modified guns on the side. It wasn't uncommon for someone to appear at the front or back door and give my father a pistol. But when this guy pointed a pistol at my father's face and said, Think about it, Bert. I knew it was a different kind of conversation. What followed happened so fast. My dad slammed the front door on the guy's wrist, causing him to drop the gun. Then dad reached for the baseball bat he kept back by the door hinges. He threw open the front door and chased the three guys off the front porch. Then he picked up the gun on the way back into the house. It was one he modified for somebody he thought was a friend. He placed the gun in the sideboard beside our dining room table where he stored a brick of weed, scales, and other guns. The next day he went into work and quit. Two months later, he opened his own company. I stood before my father's workbench after the visit with Grandpa Keen's handcuffs dangling from my wrist. On the workbench, I could see some guns my father was working on, some of his finer tools that I never knew what he used for, 
in a bottle of peppermint schnapps. My dad opened the bottle and took a swig, and then he opened a small case and came out with a rotary cutter. You're going to have to sit really still, okay, bud? And tell me if this gets hot. When what gets hot, I said. I'm going to cut the handcuffs off your wrist. Metal heats up when it's cut. I'll check on the heat too, so don't worry. But I want you to let me know if things get hot so I can stop for a while. My father saw how nervous I was. He handed the bottle of peppermint schnapps to me. Take a good sip of that. I did. It tasted like strong cough syrup, but I tried keeping my composure. My dad nodded, signaling for me to take a second sip. In minutes, just long enough for dad to set up his rotary cutter, I felt relaxed. I thought it was cool because I got to wear safety goggles and watch my dad work, cutting into the metal of the handcuffs. I let him know when things heated up, and between breaks waiting for the metal to cool back down, my father took sips of the peppermint schnapps. When the metal was cut almost all the way through, my father put one end of the cut into a vise and worked at separating the other end of the cut apart with a long pair of pliers that gave him the leverage needed to bend the metal enough to get my hand free. I looked at my wrist. The only mark was from fighting with the handcuffs in Grandpa Keen's office. My father's work, even under the influence of the peppermint schnapps, was perfect. Want to have some fun, my dad said. I nodded. He picked up one of the pistols from his workbench and inserted a clip. He handed the gun to me. In the back corner of his shop, he had a huge pile of railroad ties stacked tight. I always wondered what the railroad ties were there for. They were full of holes, and knowing that things ate wood, I just figured there was some kind of wood-eating worm out there. Little worms about the size of bullets, to be exact. I was never the biggest fan of guns. They were just so loud. I'd shot rifles at targets before, but this was the first time Dad ever offered me a handgun. He showed me how to hold it, how to aim it, and how to release the safety. He told me to aim at the railroad ties in the corner. He told me to take a slow breath and exhale as I gently pulled the trigger. With the warm glow of peppermint schnapps now coursing through my body, I pulled the trigger and the gun rattled and rocked in my hand. Flame shot from the muzzle. I expected a single shot, not a rolling parade of lead to fly from the gun. It scared the crap out of me. I put the safety on and placed the gun on the workbench next to the others, realizing at that moment that at least part of the money Dad brought home from his shop wasn't from fixing forklifts. I asked Dad for another sip of the peppermint schnapps, but he told me I'd had enough. In his own weird way, he fancied himself a responsible parent. But this isn't a story about my grandfather, or even my father so much. It's about me and sports. Soccer, to be exact. I first played organized soccer in fifth grade the year before I moved to Kansas. My team, the Cosmos, came in first place. The league ranged in age from fifth grade to eighth grade. I was our team's goaltender that year, and I only let two goals pass me all season. I'd like to say I was a prodigy in the net, but that wasn't the case. I wasn't bad in goal, but to be honest, my remarkable goals against average was in large part due to an 8th grade defender who ensured very few people got close enough to me to get a good shot on goal that had any real chance of going in. 
So when I moved to Kansas in sixth grade and told my father I wanted to sign up for soccer, I may as well have told him, in French no less, that I wanted to design dresses. Of course, I didn't call it soccer at the time. Choosing a different sport to play wasn't enough for me. I had to call it football because that's what most of the world called it. So when my dad heard me say that I wanted to play football, he was ecstatic. While I was a scrawny kid, in my father's eyes, the game he thought I was talking about would turn me into a beast. I was already climbing into my husky phase of childhood, which would quickly ensure that if I were in a room with other kids my age, I would be the biggest. I'm sure my father envisioned me as a linebacker who would eviscerate quarterbacks and leave running backs in piles on the field. There would be scholarships to college, and Dad would be at my side when I signed a letter of intent to play for the Chicago Bears or Kansas City Chiefs. Every professional game, he'd be there live watching his son play football. American football. I can still see the disappointment on my father's face when I told him football meant soccer in my pretentious little world. This is what my dad knew about soccer. You couldn't use your hands. Players fell down and grabbed legs you'd think were broken by the way they acted if an opposing player came anywhere in the vicinity of them when they had the ball. It may as well have been 22 players in a massive slap fight. To my father, it didn't get any worse than soccer. To my father's credit, though, he always supported anything that meant something to me. One day he even sat down and watched a soccer game on ESPN with me. The rules for offsides confused him, and he couldn't understand how, in his mind, barely bumping somebody constituted a foul. When a player got a bit overzealous on a slide tackle and the referee held up a yellow card, my dad said, What's that? That's a yellow card, I said. When you don't play the ball first when you slide, or you do something a little bit more serious than an accidental bump, they give you a yellow card. It's a warning. What happens if you hit them really hard? If you do that or you keep getting fouls, you get a red card and you get pulled from the game. Do they get to keep them? Keep what? The cards. It was a weird question. I'm sure that in my dad's mind, a player with stacks of yellow and red cards around their house was at least a tough enough soccer player to maybe move up to basketball. No, I said. You don't want yellow or red cards. My dad also had his own shop when he lived in Kansas, where he fixed forklifts and perfected modifying handguns and selling marijuana. He worked most Saturday mornings when I played, so my stepmother, who also didn't understand soccer, took me to games each weekend. She knew enough to shout when our team had the ball, and boo when somebody on the opposing team scored a goal or took a cheap shot. Near the end of the season, my dad finally had time to take me to a game. In Kansas, I played defending midfielder, which meant my days of standing in goal and getting breaks were behind me. It was over 100 degrees outside that day, but that didn't stop the game from going on. There was just more water and orange wedges on the benches. The team we played that day had a Brazilian coach. Okay, so maybe he wasn't Brazilian, but that's the impression I got when looking at and listening to him. In fact, he looked like he fathered the entire opposing team. Every kid looked like his seed on legs, and they played soccer like a machine. They also seemed impervious to the heat. Here's the way our league worked. You could change players out, but then you had to wait for the other team to change a player out before making another substitution. A kid on our team went out pretty early because of the heat. I was the next to feel the effects of that 100-plus degree day. 
I called to my coach, a really nice guy from some Slavic country who pronounced goli as koli. He looked sad that he couldn't pull me because the other team hadn't made a substitution. I could see the worry on my coach's face, and I could see my dad, who'd been sneaking sips of peppermint schnapps from a half-pint bottle tucked in his jeans, getting mad. The opposing team's coach knew I was sapped. He commanded his genetic army of soccer-playing robots to attack my part of the field. I felt dizzy and hot. I wanted out, but my coach couldn't pull me from the game. I recognized just how sick it was that a grown man, the other coach, was taking pleasure in watching a sixth grader on the verge of going down from heat exhaustion. Some kid, who was probably a second-born son, had the ball. The kid put a move on me, but I was still fast enough to stick out a foot and trip him. The whistle blew and the referee held up a yellow card. My coach shook his head, anticipating what was coming next. When play resumed, I ran around until a kid I knew was the opposing coach's son had the ball. I charged Adam with a plan. His attention was on the one fast kid on our team who pursued him, so he didn't see me coming. <laughs> I leaped with all my might and speared the kid in the midsection like I was Dick Buttkiss destroying a running back on the 50-yard line at Soldier Field, not some kid trying to get thrown out of a junior soccer game on a park league field in Olathe, Kansas. The kid went down and didn't move. I got up and smiled at his father as a red card went up in the referee's hand. It was held right in front of my face, and I was told to get off the field. I snatched the red card from the referee's hand and made my way toward the bench, refusing his calls for me to come back and give him the card. As the other team's coach ran past me to check on his son, I tried tripping him too, but I missed. The thought was there, at least, and it seemed everybody watching understood why I did what I did. As I stood on the side of the field drinking water and eating orange wedges, I smelled the familiar odor of peppermint schnapps and the unfiltered lucky strikes that killed my dad when he was only 50. I felt my dad's hand on my shoulder. I'm proud of you, bud. I gave my father the red card and told him I was done playing soccer and ready to play American football. On our walk to his van, he handed me the bottle of peppermint schnapps and told me I could polish it off. A big thank you for listening to Not About Lumberjacks. All music by Ergo Fizmiz and Poddington Bear, released under a Creative Commons license. Not About Lumberjacks is also released under a Creative Commons license. Visit nolumberjacks.com for information about the show, the voice talent, and music. While you're there, feel free to stumble around the website and see what other goodies are there. This is the part of a podcast where I'm supposed to tell you that if you like the show, go to iTunes and leave a rating or a review. But really all I ask, if you like the show, tell somebody you know. Word of mouth means so much more to me than internet points. Next month's story is about a drifter who returns to his hometown after his parents die, only to find out the sole possession left to him in the will is a plastic magic eight ball. Until next time, be mighty and keep your axes sharp.